this week more than 130 heads of state and thousands of diplomats from all over this world have been meeting in Glasgow, my home city, for the UN Climate Change Conference called COP26. They've been debating how they can lower CO2 emissions, methane emissions, all the other greenhouse gases, and also other, other things that they can do to reduce the impact on our planet's climate. Now, I know that there are lots of different views about this. And for many people, this, this is, is not an issue. For some people, they think this is a, a, a conspiracy theory. Uh, but for many people in the world today, this is the most important issue facing the planet today. They are terrified of the heat waves and the, the droughts and the flooding and the wildfires that they believe will come as a result of global warming. And as COP26's president said last Sunday, this conference is seen as the last best hope of tackling this climate crisis. But whatever your views are on climate change and whatever COP26 will or will not achieve, we are here this morning rejoicing in the fact that this conference is not our last best hope. Because those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we have a much greater hope. A more sure and certain hope. Because we have the hope of the resurrection. One day Jesus will come back again for everyone who's trusted in him, both dead and alive. And together, in transformed bodies, we will be caught up together to be with Jesus forever in his Father's house. This is the greatest hope for humanity. And yet over the years, this hope has been resisted, it's been rejected, even ridiculed. And not just in the world, but also in the church. This was a problem in the church in Corinth. Maybe like the philosophers that Paul met in Athens, they just sneered at the whole concept of the, the resurrection of the dead. They just thought that was impossible. Or maybe it was because they just wanted everything that Jesus had won for them on the cross. They wanted to experience everything now. A bit like the prosperity teachers of our day who don't want to wait for heaven for all of that. But whatever the reason, there were some in that church who were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And so, the Apostle Paul wrote to challenge this. To reaffirm the hope of the resurrection and to show how this resurrection should impact our lives. But before he did this, he reaffirmed the basis of this hope. Declaring again the heart of the gospel. So this morning we are going to read this wonderful passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 11, and Alison's going to come up and she's going to read it to us this morning. Thanks, Alison. Now, brothers, 
I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received I pass on to you as as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, at the same time most of still living, through some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I have persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect no, no, I worked harder than all of them yet not I but the grace of God that, has, that was with me whether then it was or I, they this is what we preach and this is what we believed Thank you very much, Alison. Paul had his priority straight. When he arrived in Corinth, he was clear about what he wanted to share. And he wouldn't be distracted from it. He said, verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This was Paul's priority because he believed that what he was preaching was the most important message ever. That's because this message is from God. Paul told the Galatians, the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. This was not another man-made religion. It wasn't the result of Paul's creative thinking. It wasn't some clever philosophy taught in the universities of Paul's day. This was from God himself. This was God's good news to the world. And that means that this message, this gospel, is still important for us today. Since it is from God, it will never go out of date. It will never need to be updated or improved or replaced. It's the most important message that anyone could ever hear. And that means that preaching it is the most important thing that we could do. That means that we need to do everything that we can to share this message with everyone that we meet. With our families with our friends, with our neighbours, with our schools and universities and colleges and work colleagues and with this world. 
We need to have that same commitment that Paul has already expressed in this letter when he said, Yet when I preach, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But the gospel isn't just important because it's from God. It's also important because it's our only hope. Look at verse 2. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. These Corinthians had listened to Paul's teaching and they had accepted the truth of it. They'd put their faith in Jesus and as a result, they were saved. Instead of standing guilty before God, they were now forgiven. Instead of being condemned by God, they had been declared righteous in God's sight. Instead of being his enemies, they were now adopted as his children. Instead of being slaves to sin, they were now free to live for him. Instead of being lost and heading to a lost eternity, they were now rescued and heading for glory. And this was only possible through believing in and holding on to the gospel. Without that complete trust in Christ and what he has accomplished for us, there's no salvation. Because there's no other way to God. There's no other hope. Now, I know that's incredibly unpopular to say today. We are supposed to believe that all roads lead to, to God in the end. That's what the world tells us. That's what our culture tells us. But it's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the only ultimate truth from God. He's the only way to, to receive eternal life. So the gospel is the only hope for humanity. So if we love people, if we care about people at all, then it's crucial that we point them to Jesus. Like Paul, we should declare, as we've been singing, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So this gospel is crucially important. And because of that, we need to be clear what it actually is. We need to know what the gospel is. So Paul said, verse 1, <coughs> excuse me, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you have taken your stand. Paul had preached the gospel to the Corinthians. They had accepted it. They believed it. But now some of them were struggling with it. They were starting to question it. 
And so Paul wanted to remind them of it. What the good news really is. And especially to remind them that the gospel is not based on just ideas. Or a set of doctrines. Or philosophies or teaching. That's not what the gospel is based on. Instead, the gospel is based on something that happened in history. It is based on a historical reality, something that changed everything. First of all, this gospel is based on the fact that Christ died for our sins. There's no gospel without the cross. Because it was on the cross that Jesus accomplished for us what we could never do for ourselves. On the cross, Jesus suffered in our place. On the cross, He was punished for our sins instead of us. He took the death sentence that we deserved. And He paid that price in full. And that is why the cross is the only way of salvation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died. Secondly, he was buried. Verse 4. Maybe this seems a little bit of a trivial detail that Paul included here, but this emphasizes the reality of the physical death of Christ. Some people have claimed that Jesus kind of only swooned on the cross and then later he, he revived. They're trying to minimize the miracle of the resurrection. But Jesus' body was buried because he really died. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing. His muscles stopped moving. His neurons stopped firing. He was truly dead. The soldiers who crucified Jesus, they knew this. Because they were experts in killing they knew when someone was dead. In fact, their own life depended on it. And so, they didn't break his legs, but instead one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of of blood and water. Now, lots of people have debated the, the physiology of what that actually means. But for those who are there, it certainly demonstrated to those who saw it, that Jesus was dead. And that is crucially important because the wages of sin is death. It's not just suffering. It's not just pain. The wages of sin is death. So if Jesus didn't die, then those wages are still outstanding. Our debt would remain unpaid. We would still be lost. But Jesus did die to pay for our sins. And that's why he was buried. But he didn't stay buried. 
The gospel is not just that Christ died and that he was buried, but it's also that he was raised on the third day. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. The stone was rolled away to reveal that the tomb was empty. The grave clothes were left behind to show that Jesus' physical body was raised miraculously to life. And as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, our salvation stands on that reality. It is the resurrection that declares that Jesus' rescue mission was completed. That our sins have been paid for in full. And that death has been defeated. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. So this is the foundation of the gospel. Our salvation is not based just on a set of doctrines or teaching. Certainly not on religious ritual and ceremony. And certainly not, definitely not on our own achievements or efforts. Rather, our salvation is based on the historical events of Jesus' death on a cross, his burial in a tomb, and his resurrection on the third day. This is the reason for our hope. But that means that we need to be really sure that these things happened. If the gospel is based on the historical events of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, then we need to be absolutely certain that that actually happened. And Paul gave two reasons in this little passage why we can have that certainty. First of all, verse 3, it was all because, it was all according to the scriptures. Centuries before this happened, the Old Testament pointed forward to all of this. Sometimes in a little bit of an obscure way, sometimes in a much more obvious way. But looking back at the Old Testament that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, we can see that Jesus' rescue mission was God's plan all along. So, for example, if you've been following on with our reading program, as we've been reading through the Torah, the Pentateuch, we're reading about all these animal sacrifices. But all of those animal sacrifices couldn't bear away anybody's sin. It couldn't ultimately pay for sin. Instead, all of these animal sacrifices were a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. The one that John the Baptist said is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course we also can see this reality in the prophecies that were given to Israel. For example, Isaiah 53. That wonderful passage. It speaks so powerfully of Jesus' death. 
Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It speaks about his death, paying for our sins. But it also describes the detail of his burial. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But it also points forward to his resurrection. In verse 11 it says, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And there are so many passages in the Old Testament that point forward to this reality. Again and again we can see the reality of what Jesus has done, either prophesied or pictured in the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus actually pointed out to two of his friends as they walked on the road to Emmaus on that very first Resurrection Sunday. Jesus said to them, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What is the Old Testament about? It's all about Jesus. Shows us the reality that this was God's plan all along. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose right down through the centuries. But it's not just the word that gives us this certainty. It's also the witnesses. Look at verse 7 in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to Peter, to the twelve. To more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. To James. To all the apostles. The Corinthians, they could be sure that the resurrection was a historical event because of the number of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. All these people saw Jesus risen from the grave themselves. And when Paul was writing this, around 53 AD or so, 20 years maybe after the the event, most of those eyewitnesses were still alive. They could be questioned to see if this had really happened. And of course, Apostle Paul, he was also among this number, wasn't he? Verse 8, and last of all, he appeared to me also. As to one abnormally born. In many ways, Paul just didn't fit in with the rest of these eyewitnesses. He hadn't been with Jesus through his earthly ministry. He hadn't been there to hear Jesus' teaching. He hadn't seen Jesus' miracles. But on that road to Damascus, he did meet the risen Christ face to face. And so Paul was the last of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That's why he's the the last of the apostles. He could add his testimony 
To all those who confidently declared that Jesus was alive. And then went on to risk everything to tell other people about this reality. So today, folks, we can be sure that the resurrection of Jesus is not a cleverly invented myth. This is not just a kind of moralistic tale that kind of helps us in our lives. This was not a mass hallucination. This was not wishful thinking. This was not a devious plan to gain power or influence over other people. This is a historical event which fulfilled God's word and was testified to by many eyewitnesses. But the question then we ask is, so what? What difference does all this make to us? So what if Jesus really did rise from the dead? What impact should this have on our lives? Well, just finally, from his own life, Paul illustrated the power of this. The power of the gospel. First of all, there was a transformed identity. Paul used to be an enemy of God. I am the least of the apostles, he says in verse 9, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Before he came to Christ, Paul had dedicated his life to stamping out the gospel. He was so convinced that he was right that he hunted for Christians, arresting them and then casting his vote for them to be killed. That's what he did before he met Jesus. But meeting Jesus had changed him. He went from being an enemy of God to a child of God. From being a self-righteous Pharisee to a forgiven Sinner, from a persecutor of the church to an apostle of Christ. And this wasn't something that Paul deserved or earned or worked for or even asked for. This was a gift of God's outrageous grace. He said in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. What an amazing gift that this guy who had caused so much suffering and pain to God's people was given instantly for free because it was paid for by Jesus. This gospel didn't only transform Paul's identity. It wasn't just when he went, oh well, I'm now a child of God. Yay. And then went on with his life. It didn't do that. Because it also transformed his life. Look at verse 10. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. 
Experiencing the grace of Christ radically transformed how Paul went on to live from then on. His life was never the same again. Instead of fighting aggressively against the gospel, Paul became one of the most committed and effective preachers of the gospel. At great personal cost. And at risk of his own life, he tirelessly worked to introduce people to Jesus. To establish them in their faith. To plant churches wherever he went. And to encourage them to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. But even Paul didn't take the credit for that. Instead he recognised that his transformed life too was a gift of God's grace. He says in verse 10, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's what changed his life. Paul didn't live this new life out of guilt for all his past mistakes. Not out of fear that somehow he was going to be punished if he didn't keep on working. Not even out of a sense of duty or an attempt to make up for all the things he'd done in the past. No, this was in response to and empowered by the same amazing grace that had brought him to Christ in the first place. And this is the power of the gospel. It can take the very worst of sinners and transform them into the most dedicated of saints. And it can do the same in our lives. And in the lives of anybody that we meet. This is what Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. We are supposed to look at the Apostle Paul and see his transformed identity and see his transformed life and say, well, if God can do that in Paul's life, he can do that in anybody's life. And maybe even more importantly, we should say that if Paul can do that, if God can do that in Paul's life, he can do that in my life and in your life we never need to say oh well that's just me I'll never change I can't be any different my life will never be any different that's just a lie from the devil because in the gospel is the power of God to transform our identity and to transform our lives There is no one who is so good that they do not need the gospel. But there is nobody who is so bad that they are beyond the power of the gospel. So this is the heart of the gospel. 
It's so important because it's from God. And it's our only hope. Its foundation is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And we can be certain of that because of the Word of God and because of the witnesses to the risen Christ. And as a result of this, the Gospel has the power to transform even the worst of sinners and make them a child of God and a servant of Christ. This is the message that we have received. This is the message that many of us have believed in. So let's firmly hold on to it. And let's faithfully hold it out to a dark and dying world.